All right, well, this beer costs $27 a case, and I think I know why, because every time I open it, they explode, so I just have to open them in the sink, and they taste like water. Is it Corona? <laughs> So kicking in with self-reflection and feedback, do you have any feedback, Chris? I did not have any feedback. No one wanted to talk to me about the episode, which is a shame because I reckon last episode was our best episode. Like, yeah, it was, it was one of my personal favorites. That's fine. I do have a couple of notes from the last episode from when I was going through it. <laughs> the Kevin 47 TV that I was talking about because it was a $900 TV. So obviously it was at least a 47 inch. No, this was 2008. It was the Kevin 37. And it was comparing quite favorably to $2,000 TVs, which were also 37 inches. Oh, what a time we lived in. What a time we lived in. The march of technology is a little bit invisible when you're marching with it. Like, is my Galaxy S20 that much better than my Galaxy S2 was? Eh, they both had OLED screens. But when you're like, a 12-year-old TV cost $900, looked like a dump truck and was 37 inches. How much, how much technological progress there's been in just even the last 10 years, which really seemed like a pretty boring 10 years. I, I vaguely remember when LED was replacing LCD. Yep. And that was like a thing in TVs. And I also remember upgrading from my 30-inch, maybe even 28-inch TV to a 42. And I'm like, this is so big. Oh, my God. I mean, I still only have a 42-inch TV. One day. One day I'll buy a new TV. I mean, it's not like you watched that much TV. You watch more than me. I may do. And I watch garbage YouTube while I do my physio. So I do watch TV twice a day now for at least 20 minutes while I do my physio exercises. There you go. Do you still do Netflix? Nah, not really. I don't have the brain power for longer shows at the moment. I can't do anything longer than about my 10-minute YouTube clip. I say that and then I'll read a 20,000 word email essay, screed, rant, whatever you want to call it. Different priorities, you know, there's opportunity cost. And if you're going to sacrifice your TV time, screed time for screen time, you know, that's a choice you can make. So that's my Kevin 37. And while we're on the TV scheme, my brilliant plan of selling the Chris 56 into Britain that doesn't have an antenna and then you don't have to pay £150 to the BBC, it doesn't work because if you have ever watched Amazon Video or YouTube, you're liable for the British TV licence. Really? Yep, they updated it. Wow. So it has always been the case, yeah. I think, that if you watched Sky TV or whatever, even if it's a competitor to the BBC, you still have to pay for the BBC because you're watching TV and it's the public radio waves. Yeah, obviously at some point they're like, man... Chris has thought of a really good loophole here, and he's not the first, so we should close that loophole before it gets too big. Yeah, sometimes governments can be clever. That one has surprised me, though. Yeah, me too. So there you go. Your friend just watching on a laptop in the UK, breaking the law. I hope they're listening, and I hope they write in with their address so we can dob them into the feds. Is it a federal government in the UK? It is not, no. <laughs> okay, good. What is it over there? Uh, a monarchy. Dob them into the queen. <laughs> All right, whatever. Well, they're not a federation, right? I mean, I actually don't know what the different countries are. Are they federated countries? They're not federated states because they don't have states. They've got countries. Like, I know there's a Scottish parliament, but I don't know how much power they have or what they have power over. Yeah. All right, listeners, write in. Let us know. While we're talking about technology and that kind of thing, and laptops especially, I bought a new laptop. So all of our speculating on graphics cards and crazy CPUs or whatever, nah, I just bought a laptop the next week. I what mean, else? you were just going to play Diablo 2 on it. So getting a Ryzen 4000 series CPU to play a 20-year-old game was always going to be a waste of money. You know what would be awful? Would be if there's actually a graphics card requirement that I don't meet for Resurrected. That would be hilarious. I'm pretty <laughs> sure you'll meet it. But that would be hilarious if you then go and buy a gaming PC so that you can play Diablo 2. Oh, that'd be so dumb. A couple of things I had going through my own notes while editing. First of all, when I was talking about the various impacts of COVID lockdowns, etc. on my friends, somehow I failed to mention my friend working in the tourism industry. And that feels like they were kind of impacted a bit. So, you know. Did they have to take a 20% pay cut for one or two months? Maybe a little bit more than that. Ouch. Yep. Yeah, and that's not the place to be. Mm, apparently, for the first bit, their days were flat out, even though they had to cut back their hours because they were just working on all the cancellations that came through. So it was still like... Like eight, nine hour flat out days, but you were just dealing with either people yelling at you or working as hard as you could to get refunds for people who just process stuff in the system. Yeah, right. What a whole lot of value add to the business. But yeah, fortunately, at least domestic tourism's coming back and who knows what will happen in the next something months. 
a statecation I heard it referred to in the ad. I quite like that turn of phrase. Nice one. Thinking about tourism and the world potentially opening up again. We got our COVID vaccination numbers. You definitely won the bet. Yes. On the day, it was not more than 100. So when we were last talking. No, I saw that. We found that I had not won when, when the last one, when I claimed victory, but I have now, right? Yeah, you have now. But I find it super disappointing how many we've done. We've only done 27,000 in a week. Wow. How many people live in Australia? It's more than that, isn't it? Hmm. I mean, sometimes it doesn't feel that way, but yeah. Well, you live in the country, so it must not do. <laughs> I live in the big city of Canberra. I guess that's one one thousandth of the Australian population in one week. Yeah, that's not very good after a week. Feels like we want to do this in more than a thousand weeks, guys. America and the UK had a slow ramp up. I wish we yeah. could have learned more from them on how to do this, and I hope it gets better. It's easy to be complacent when you don't have any local transmission, and I think we are, and I think we should not be. I just think that Victoria can happen again, and Victoria was awful. Yeah, also, if the rest of the world opens up, I don't necessarily want to be the literal backwards country that Australia always thinks it itself is, that won't let anyone in, won't let anyone out. Yes, maybe we need another bet to get them started. Yeah, sure. I can spare coffee money if it's going to get vaccinations happening. <laughs> Not that big a sacrifice. And then other note for myself was I mentioned about Venezuela perhaps being a bit better than when they had to come up with the measure of income by calories. Calories per day. Yep. Yep. It is a little bit better, but it's not much better. It's really? still looking pretty rough. Yeah. So we'll chuck a link in the show notes, but there was something from Tyler at Martian Revolution recently on it. As Venezuela enters its eighth year of economic crisis, millions of women are no longer able to find or afford birth control, pushing many into unplanned pregnancies at a time that they can barely feed the children they already have. Yep. I remember reading that. It's rough. A pack of three condoms costs $4.40, which is three times Venezuela's monthly minimum wage. Monthly. Monthly minimum wage of $1.50. That is insanity. It's a month's wage for a condom. That's too much. So, yeah, things are still tough in Venezuela. And then, final point, I closed out the episode last week saying I'd look into prediction markets. Oh. I've had a rough week. I'm going to be oh. honest with it, all the listeners. So I have not managed to look into prediction markets. But thinking about this did remind me of a thought I had about news organizations and how to fund the news as well. And it's kind of a deep set of links here to various conversations that have happened so far. So we talked about there's got to be some way for the news to monetize itself outside of the old ways of classifieds and advertising that don't seem to be working on this new media platform, as well as not just holding a gun to tech platforms heads. Yep. And I think that prediction markets could be it. Oh, the news is going to run the prediction markets? It could be like short sellers. So short sellers make their money by doing research and releasing it to the market after they've opened a position. And news organizations could do the same if there were open prediction markets on things like elections or even okay. just like government policy, that kind of thing. Yeah, I don't feel like we delved deeply enough into it last time. But there's sort of journalism, then there's journalism. And the news that we tend to read is a narrative, usually, the intellectual take and its analysis, and there's a lot behind it. And that seems to still do okay. That's what Stubstack is. That's what the New York Times does. But like true journalism is just finding out facts and reporting them for everyone to know. And that is what is incredibly difficult to monetize, because as soon as the fact's out there, everyone can repeat it for free. And so it's very, very difficult to make your money reporting the facts first or reporting a different set of facts or whatever. But if we're no longer just reporting facts, and then putting ads beside it because the facts are worth reading and then I'll read the ads and I'll buy a sweet boat. But we're actually trading on markets because we have better facts. Yeah, maybe I could actually see that working. So there you go. That's one for people who aren't our friends to go and look into. <laughs> I mean, maybe some of our entrepreneurial friends could start up that market for us. Oh yeah, you know who you are. You know who you are. I hope you're listening. So speaking of all these journalists that aren't getting paid... I've got another idea. <laughs> this is the concept of universal basic income. So this was actually a topic sent in by one of our Patreon patrons. Uh, you can always send a topic in even if you're not a Patreon patron. We're running out of ideas here. So universal basic income, for those who are unfamiliar with the concept, is the idea that the government can pay a stipend to every single citizen or sometimes every single adult in the country, regardless of employment status or job-seeking status or age or any other circumstances. By virtue of being a citizen of the country, you gain the benefits of the civilization within which you are born. So... Typically, it's pegged at enough to just barely live off, but not really enough to thrive. It's popular in a lot of different ways. So if you're of a left-wing bent, the idea of helping those less fortunate than yourself is popular because everyone gets the money and they don't have to worry about uh, if they have to fill in the forms to be sick or if they have to apply for X number of jobs a year or blah, 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 blah. They just get taken care of with this stipend every year. But you can be quite a fan of it if you're a libertarian. So there's a lot of government programs. In America, there's food stamps. And in Australia, there's rent assist. And there's all sorts of different programs. And that comes along with a whole lot of public services. 
servants that are getting paid salaries to organize, administrate, and, you know, depending on your opinion of government, maybe or maybe not doing the best possible job of that. And you can sort of get rid of all of that, because what the government definitely is good, because they've had a lot of practice, is just cutting checks every week. So we don't have to have people checking on, oh, did you really apply for five jobs or was it only four jobs? Let me have a look at the form that you signed in triplicate. They're like, all those people are gone. All those people are out of jobs, but we're also going to give them the money. <laughs> So you just give money, cash money, straight into people's bank accounts, probably not in literal cash, and they can spend it how they like. They can spend it on their rent, they can spend it on their food, they can do what they like with it. So they have much more control over their own lives and they don't have the government telling them exactly how they're supposed to spend their money because they're obviously a failed person if they can't get their own job and if we're going to help you, we're going to put a whole lot of strings attached and control your life through proxy. So that's the idea of universal basic income. And what level of income is this like generally pitched at? The latest pitch and the reason that it was raised to me by our listener was was $15,000 Australian per year, which is pretty low. What does that work out at? About $300 a week? Yep. And is that universal, universal? Like a five-year-old would get $15,000 as well? Doesn't say one way or another in the news article that I have open, but it's about only the job seeker rate. Job seeker rate is about $15,000 per annum. So what we are saying is that everyone will get this at all times, looking for jobs, not looking for jobs, sick, healthy, poor, rich, everyone will get their universal basic income. Interesting. 15 grand a year. I mean, yeah, you could scrape by on that in some areas, I suppose. It's livable. It's sort of livable in the country. I think if you're in a couple, I think two people living on $30,000 feels a lot more plausible than a single person living on $15,000. Well, the majority of Australians do not live like in the country. <laughs> no. No, no, that's true. Most people earn and spend more than that money. But it's possible. I've, I've yeah. done it. Like there would be sacrifices to be made. You'd probably be share housing if you wanted to just live your life that way or that kind of thing. Or, you know, living in multi-generational households. Also, yes. But it's a thing that you could do. You could get by. I do not see that amount of money and just say it's impossible to live, which I know would be some people's reaction on that amount. Uh, certainly. But I mean, the other thing is that that is new start. So people who are on new start currently are living on that amount of money, other than the ones with huge inheritances and trust funds, which I'm sure is most of the people on new start. The ones who don't have their huge inheritances are just living on exactly that amount of money. So it is doable. I don't think it's comfortable. I think it is frequently complained about at a contentious point in our current politics. But I think it is possible. So affordable, that is one way to look at it as being affordable. It's like, can the person who is receiving the income afford it? And the other way is, is it actually possible for a country to pay out that much money to all its citizens or would we bankrupt the federal government pretty quickly? And I actually did some sums on this four years ago, I want to say, to see what it would take to give every Australian a $15,000 income. So I think I thresholded it at non-children. So I think you have to be able to vote before you can earn your $15,000. I do feel like children are expensive and they deserve some additional money if you are a parent. But whichever way that goes, I can't imagine it makes an enormous difference in the numbers. And what I found, if you want this to be uh, net neutral on the Australian budget, and you could just say, ah, oh, we're doing modern monetary theory now and money doesn't matter and we don't have to keep an account, we're not issuing bonds, we can just print money to do this. So then you can pay any amount of money and there might be inflation consequences down the line, but there's a whole lot of argument now about how big those inflation consequences will be and whether we can just ride the lightning for a little while and uh, get it. But assuming that you wanted to balance your budget and you wanted to keep the Australian budget somewhat similar to where it is today, which I imagine is in deficit, but that's fine, we're in a pandemic, I expect it to be a deficit, you could cut the old age pension, cut New Start. They're the two biggest buckets of money that the government just gives out. So you're not getting UBI plus New Start when you're out of a job. You're only getting UBI. And you're no longer getting a pension. You're only getting UBI. And that actually does reduce the income of seniors very slightly. I think the old age yep. pension is slightly higher than $15,000 a year. You would replace the superannuation scheme with tax. So that 9.5% of your salary that goes into superannuation currently would instead go towards government taxes. And you would remove the tax-free threshold. So I think that that is obvious that if you're getting given $15,000 as your first startup, you don't need a tax-free threshold on your first earnings. And at that point, we can do it. So that's a lot to cut, but it does mean it's more affordable than you would think. Got it. Because currently you pay taxes on government stipends. Yes, that's In true. In your scheme, would you be paying taxes on the UBI or not? Mm, good question. I'm going to say not. I'm going to say that you are going to be $15,000. Yep. Okay. It's just non-accessible income. Yeah. It replaces, what have we got, an $18,000 tax rate threshold at the moment? Instead, now you've got this $15,000 UBI, which is not taxed, and every dollar you earn past that is taxed. Yep. Interesting. So that's the mechanics. That's the mechanics. Is that any good? Should we do it? At least one guy with a book being published lately thinks we should. Hmm. I mean, in some ways it's efficient in terms of bureaucracy. Yep. And I think to go back to a guy we talked about a while ago, Milton Friedman, uh, it seems in line with some of his thoughts on negative income taxes. <sighs> 
I don't think it's high enough to really dissuade people from pursuing work or whatever. I don't think 15 grand a year is going to really move the marginal decision-making point for a lot of people to go to work. So I don't think that productivity impacts on the economy are going to be that negative from it yep. in terms of like people being scared that people would not want to work. Right. Okay. So are you personally scared? Because this is the one that gets brought up a lot, right? We just pay people to do nothing. They're going to do nothing. That's what we're all going to do. And I don't really believe that as someone who just got a new job, despite, you know, potentially not needing to work for a while. I like working and I think that that is true of most people. And the studies where they've done limited UBI experiments would also bear that out. The, the main demographics of people who do choose to stop working when they're given UBI are people who have someone else to care for, usually their children, but potentially an elderly or sick relative, and people who want to study. Yeah, I would be inclined to think there may be some of it, but it would not be an overwhelming majority of the population. Here's one way I could see it actually playing out though, would be myself as a uni student, I would have just not worked. Like I would have just been like, okay, cool video games all the time whatever i tried working in accounting those bosses were jerks i'm not going to do that i'm just going to stay home and take my ubi and then i'll never join the workforce till you graduate oh right you think you never would have gotten your first job so i think the risk of it becoming endemic at that generational point would be higher Mm, that's an interesting one the people who would never get a job yeah i don't know i don't know yeah so you take the ubi to study which is probably pretty valid i don't hate the idea of people just studying and not having to work as well although you know depends on your opinion of what education is maybe we could rework that whole system sounds like a topic for another podcast. Assuming you think that education improves people, then I think that focusing solely on that improvement rather than working at the same time, that is a reasonable reason to give people money to stay at home and not work. But you're concerned that maybe at the end of uni, they're like, this playing video games is pretty great. And now I don't have lectures to get in the way of my video games. I'm never going to work. Yeah. This is just purely my own narcissistic self from being 21 years old or whatever. When I did that for a brief period, I could see that happening. Yeah. I wonder what it takes to break that. Because I feel like I had that similar thing at uni. I had some uni jobs, but I didn't always have a uni job I was a bit up and down but I worked for 18 months at uni in public practice accounting and for my last six months of uni I quit and I'm like no I'm gonna live like a uni student for my last six months (laughs) of uni nice no more sports cards or um, caviar for Brian. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That's what life is like as a trainee accountant. I'll assure you of that. Yep. <laughs> Nothing but caviar for the... Uh... Caviar and sports cards. And you've still managed to give up those caviar and sports cards to this very day. It takes a lot. You've got a lot of willpower, man. A lot of willpower. <laughs> What else? How else could I think people would be judgy of this? Some people would be judgy of it in that it would incentivize more people to have children. If you're giving kids money, then people will be yeah, more incentivized yeah, to yeah, have yeah, more yeah. kids, which I don't know, whatever, if you're pronatalist or antinatalist. I'd... I don't get antinatalists. I can kind of understand pronatalist. I'm not sure that I am pronatalist or whether I want a pronatalist government, but antinatalist, they just bug me. Yep. We can talk about that in the next section. Topic for, oh, we're going we're gonna to be writing a lot of future podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, people would be concerned about the environmental impacts of the increased consumption as a result of that as well. I hate those people. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just coming up with the potential arguments against this. Sure, 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 sure. Yeah, but I definitely see in a lot of right-wing spheres that people, we already covered it, are disincentivized from working and work adds value. Work's important. I think that nothing gets done without work. I think it's important that some people work and that there are the appropriate incentives in play. But I think that $15,000 a year is not a sufficient disincentive for most people to stop working. And I think the marginal person who was going to earn $20,000 but instead stays at home on $15,000, I don't know. I wonder how much value they're adding to the economy and how many of them there are really. Yeah. So that's a quick passing over of some of the arguments against because I get to bring him up. Brian Kaplan recently had an article on UBI and people who dropped out of the workforce and then just basically those guys exactly like my 21 year old self who just decided to play video games and spend all their time not caring for anyone just watching movies and playing games yeah and they don't seem to live good lives right they're not loving it being just sort of disconnected from everyone and everything well it doesn't talk about whether they have good lives or not it doesn't say what their opinions are it's like very judgmental Mm -hmm. of them i was very happy as a 21 year old to make the active decision to go okay i can comprehend my own mortality and you know what choosing to play a video game right now why not Why not? Okay, that's good. I mean, perhaps I was a bit of a nihilistic 21-year-old, but yeah. So I think Brian Kaplan's research mostly stems from the GFC, where unemployment raised, but also workforce participation dropped, which is people who are no longer looking for work. And this is a lot of, they call them prime-aged people, so people within the 18 to 65 range, where you could generally expect those people to be working full-time. And a huge number of them did indeed drop out of the workforce and never rejoined, or it took a long time to rejoin. Maybe by the mid-2018, 2019, some of them were starting to rejoin. But yeah, a lot of them dropped out of the workforce permanently, and yeah probably watched a lot of media and played a lot of video games. Yeah. So I don't know. Depends on how judgy you are of people who choose to do that kind of thing and whether you think they're actually happy doing it or not. I don't know. Maybe they are. Maybe they aren't. 
Maybe they would be more fulfilled. I think when I've had this conversation, when you first were talking about this four years ago, I kind of wanted, if that was going to be the case, to have some kind of interventionist thing to make people at least go out and socialize occasionally to force we them had, out of that yes, bubble. Yes, that you have to sign something that says, I'm caring for such and such. And like, we're not really going to check up that much, but there's enough of a vibe that you have to sort of pretend and the hope that it will encourage people to actually go out and care for people. Yep. So I've got to have my weekly call with Chris and record a podcast just to check in on it. And value to the world. And hundreds of dollars to GDP, this podcast. Hundreds, uh, assuming all our patrons stay. <laughs> so I guess that's a little bit of the arguments against and some counter arguments to those. We've sort of touched on arguments for, it's more efficient. It just generally provides livable support for people with no stress, can free people up to be willing to move out of their jobs and experiment more. So I think that's the big one idea out of this UBI, that it would allow for more entrepreneurship. When you're living hand to mouth, paycheck to paycheck, you can't take six months off to try to start your business with no income because you literally can't afford rent next week if you don't go to your job every week. So having that fallback of I can scrape by on a fairly low end existence for six months, 12 months while I start my boutique bakery or I get my podcast off the ground or whatever people want to do, it gives more people that opportunity that wouldn't otherwise have it. I think that's the valid one. It's just a matter of how entrepreneurial are people generally and is that benefit? Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult thing to calculate. And this may determine where you fall is that I struggle without anything to do. I had nothing to do yesterday and I was very sad. Having a job is quite important, I think, to my self-worth and my motivation. But, you know, I am an atypical person, as we all are, and maybe that's not the case for everyone. So how many people need to be encouraged to work so that we get things done as a society and how many people should just be allowed to enjoy their leisure time because society is rich enough already? I think... Just generally, the idea of increased entrepreneurship, etc. I don't know how much breakthrough value there would be in Australia for it, but I think there would be a lot of potentially incremental value to it. So I don't think we're going to get, you know, a new Google or anything unlocked by that if we had UBI, a no. bunch of coders or anything. Like, here's my view on entrepreneurship in Australia. If you're going to have a billion dollar company, guess what? It's not going to be in Australia. You're going to go over to the US and start that company. You may be Australian, but you know who's getting those tax dollars? The US, all right? Uh, some of them start here at Lassian. Kaggle? Well, not that Kaggle is a billion dollar company. Alassian is there? Yeah, they might start here, but they're not going to scale here. No, they're not going to scale here. And indeed, they didn't scale here. And now they are indeed an American company. But they got pretty big in as being Australia. And they, I think they still have a pretty big presence in Australia. Coding is a really interesting one because coding is definitely one of those things where you just need yourself. So you really could just sit at home with a $400 laptop and your $15,000 UBI and create some app that is quite valuable. And maybe there's people who don't get that opportunity. Although I will say, if you can code, you can usually earn a pretty good income. So maybe you can afford to take six months break if you live on that 15 you can probably earn thirty thousand dollars in six months and then take the next six months off and live on that fifteen thousand dollars so maybe ubi doesn't help you very much i think there's quite a cultural level of support for that approach as well so there's not really too many barriers to people doing that in the coding world i think in the coding world coding world's a weird world i like being in it it's weird though it's different mm. all right we've covered mechanics we've covered arguments against and arguments for what are the weird things if it was implemented paint me a picture of something weird just to make it extra engaging that would happen as a result i mean i think that daycares all go out of business right? I don't know. I feel like if you're just getting paid to stay at home, like I know there's a lot of people that barely break even on their childcare costs. If you can stay home and still make a bunch of money, I think that the idea of sending a kid to daycare goes like right out the window from a financial perspective. Some people like that attachment to the workforce, but the financial pressures on that will be quite extreme at that point. I'm going to one-up you there. I think that it's a reasonable insight as someone with children and as someone who's been around many other parents, I think it'd stratify. Okay. So I think daycare would get even more expensive than it already is, which sounds crazy to people, but that's because all the people who, like you say, love being around their kids or whatever, I can just earn money, would just stay at home. And that would make the daycare market just premium for all the parents who are like, I'm going to earn more money. And you know what? There's only so long I can spend around my kids. Right. Yes. I always wonder how much parents like spending time around their kids. They seem to cap out at a few hours a day. <laughs> yeah. I think there's some parents who really, really like it. But there was a, an interview with Emily Oster a few years ago where she like made the mention of the eighth hour of work is better than the fifth hour of parenting. And I'm like, yes, that is too true. Yeah, so you don't want to go home early necessarily. <laughs> Yeah, kids are a lot of work. Yeah, they get better around age three and a half, but yeah, ooh, it's a lot. Terrible twos and threes. Yeah, they're tricky there. They're real tricky. Okay, so that's one weird thing and it'd have impacts. I reckon there'd be a lot of impacts on the arts. Yeah, sure. Starving artists don't have to starve anymore. No. They can eat ramen for days. I don't know what that would play out to be. Would there just be a lot more painting classes, I suppose? More people learning yeah, to sing? Yeah, little communes, maybe. Yeah. Maybe that would be a thing. Like, you know, if we're expecting that you need to pull resources, like I say, $15,000 to live on your own. 
own feels very hard to me. $30,000 as a couple feels okay. So maybe if you're in your little art commune and there's five of you sharing a house, maybe that's your share house. It's your little art commune. You pull five people's UBI together and you can kind of live a reasonable life. I can see that. Maybe. Yeah. So it could be like interior note of the bash houses. Well, yeah, it incentivizes the pooling of resources that way. You could end up with some crazy big communal houses that were actually kind of fancy that way. Interesting. You get to fancy. You still have to pay for people's food and utilities. Yeah, yeah. But like if everyone's getting all that money anyway, people in the house could also be earning an income to make it a fancier house, right? They could. And they could be selling their art, of course. Mm. That would be what they would probably hope to do. I don't know whether artists actually hope to sell their art. I know some like the idea of being rich, famous artists, but some make art for the sake of the art. I'm not really sure what the modern majority would say to that, whether you should be selling your art or whether you should be making art for its own sake. Artists who are listeners, phone in. So the last point that I wanted to make, it's sort of a tangential one to UBI, but the idea is that we can cut bureaucracy and people will just give them money uh, and that is better than, you know, the government deciding. But is it always, right? Some government programs for people who really struggle to look after themselves have to be better than giving a person who can't look after themselves a big pile of money and saying, figure it out. And this has been studying a bit in developmental economics where just giving cash out is a surprisingly high bar to pass. There are a few charities that do, I think, give directly, I think is the name of the most famous one, which says, just give people money and it will make their lives better. Don't be giving them food or entrepreneurial classes or clean water or things where children have to play on a playground to pump the water up but it's really tiring backbreaking work and they hate it and like it looks really good on the ads but it actually is terrible and no one likes it just give them the money and they'll figure it out so I think that that is a high bar I think it is a higher bar than we know because we like to think that we know the solution and just enact that rather than giving people agency in their lives but I don't think it is the ultimate bar I think that there is a step for government to help those who really can't look after themselves with what they should be spending their money on and programs in terms of training them for job skills or helping match them with employers or even just directly housing and food uh, could be more valuable to people than basic income. Yeah. Okay. So there's kind of two parts to your argument there. One is what we touched on last week in the Gates letter. He mentioned how a lot of women just don't have bank accounts and aren't registered for taxes. So you can't give them tax refunds as a way of stimulus. And that same principle would apply here. The mentally ill or homeless populations or other people who have been displaced from usual society may not have access to UBI as a result of their circumstance. And then there's the second part, which is sometimes direct targeting of spending, even if it is against the person's will, what they would do if they were just given that money to spend can be better for them than what they would choose to do. Yes, possibly. possibly. I think those cases exist. I would agree. There's a lot of room on the edge of any case. <laughs> yeah, when you categorize things, there's always edge cases. So that's one of them is that maybe just giving everyone a big pile of money doesn't solve all the world's problems. Society has a fat edge. That's all I can say. <laughs> yes, that's true indeed. So, I mean, would you say you are in favor of UBI? Do you think that it is a policy that Australia should enact today or at what GDP per capita, let's call it, should we do it? It's a big call. Hmm. Sacrifice super. Sacrifice super. No tax-free threshold. Meh. Assuming no empathy for all those government people who've been putting 20% into their super funds for the last 30 years. I don't know whether we're confiscating super. We're just not paying it going forward. Oh, okay. So we're not confiscating it. So everything that used to go to the super account now is a tax. Sure. Yep. You think we should do it? We're pro-UBI. If that could fund 15 grand a year, yep. I would be interested to do the maths again on 2020 numbers, but yeah, when I did it in 2016, that was what I worked out based on the federal budget and the number of people in Australia. You get all their super, get all their pensions, all their new start. You can pay every single person $15,000 a year. Yeah, there you go. I mean, you'd have to reform the rest of the tax system a fair bit if we're going to say that people are going to become more entrepreneurial. Presumably, they're going to start companies and things to route their money through that. And so you'd have to tighten up a bit of that stuff so they couldn't just park their money in that and not get taxed but yeah in principle i agree all right maybe it is the idea whose time has come i think i'm pro right so it was a sacrifice of future super contributions pension new start tax-free threshold yes normally here we'd plug our patreon or we'd say please email us but no one ever emails us and we've got a few patreons so what i want you to do this week listeners is just share the podcast with one person you think might enjoy it just let them know that some friends of yours or some people you've discovered on reddit or however you found us have actually like a pretty good podcast and they're now nine episodes in and it's going really well and maybe you'd like to listen to it they have interesting discussions it's different from maybe what you've heard before so just give a recommendation out there that would help us out would appreciate a bit of virality folks even if our r is only two i can do yeah two take over the world in what 10 reproduction cycles probably feel so let's do it you can do it folks so there was a excellent podcast 
both Chris and I listened to called Rationally Speaking with Julia Galef, where she interviewed Jonathan Haidt on different premises for morality, or he framed it as moral foundations theory, trying to understand, you know, why Julia in particular struggled with a different philosopher she interviewed, challenging her on whether consensual cannibalism could be seen as moral or ethical. Yeah, whether it was immoral. So there was a case in Germany, what, 10, 15 years ago, where some guy put out a newspaper ad of all things. Haha, <laughs> classifieds. <laughs> like when newspapers used to make money off cannibals. <laughs> <laughs> Disgusting. Yeah, where a guy in Germany put out an ad to say, looking for a healthy 20 to 35 year old male who is willing to be eaten, essentially. And he got a whole bunch of people saying, yes, please. Killed and eaten. Yes, please. Kill me and eat me. Yep. Killed and eaten. And yeah, he did it. And he got arrested and all that stuff, obviously. But because he killed someone and ate them. The question was because it was entirely consensual and people were presumably in their right mind making that decision and going into it. Was that immoral? And I'm going to say that 99% of people who listen to this, despite the fact it was consensual, are going to say, no, it's not moral. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I pause. Yeah. And this podcast was Julia, who is an excellent interviewer. I greatly recommend that podcast generally. I'm going to say possibly literally the best. She's phenomenal. If you drop our podcast and you're like, I don't need to listen to Brian Chris anymore, listen to Julia instead. She's better than us. Yeah, there's a couple of duds in there, but generally. Oh yeah, she had a rough run getting back into it. She stopped podcasting for like a year and the first few when she got back, I'm like, man, you have chosen terrible interviewees. But prior to that, she was phenomenal and she seems to have hit her stride again. So her struggling through that moral dilemma. So she is very much on the side of it was okay if it's all consensual. I can only see this in terms of there might be secondary effects on society overall if consensual cannibalism became more normal and maybe people could be harmed that way. And before everyone cancels Julia, she did caveat and hem and haw. It's like she would need to be really convinced that it was consensual, that these people weren't mentally unwell or coerced in some other way to be eaten, that they were genuinely, truly, this is something they actually wanted for themselves. She would need a fair bit of convincing to be convinced that anyone would want that. But having been convinced of that, she would be more okay with it. Yep. And that was what she was putting towards. But at the same time, she just probably didn't feel 100% confident with herself on it. She managed to reason herself into that position. But it was a challenging conversation for her. And she went to talk to Jonathan Haidt about it, about this moral foundations theory around why it might have felt a bit awkward. Yep. And so my favorite thing from the Wikipedia article, because I did my research on this, listeners, this is the most research I've ever done for a podcast. Please give me a little pat on the back. (laughs) It's not even the main part of this topic of moral foundation theory, but like one of the throwaway lines was something like morals are all intuitive, that morality is shaped by emotions and intuition and then reasoned about later. So we decide automatically based on just our feelings whether something is moral or amoral. And then we very cleverly fill in the blanks later of appealing to this Socratic method or this Nietzschean will to power of why it is or isn't moral. Yeah. We rarely start reasoning things and then to come to conclusions that are kind of gross to us and then say, well, I mean, I've reasoned myself into this, so I'm going to have to accept it. That is an interesting point. I think she even brought that up on the podcast, or maybe Jonathan did, that so much of human decision-making and human justifications is actually already predetermined, and it's just us creating a narrative and an explanation behind why we came to that determination that may not necessarily actually be true. It's just like we're, we're just looking for justifications. Yeah, as soon as I read it out, I'm like, this doesn't apply just to morals, does it? This applies to nearly everything in life. You make a snap decision, and then you have to explain yourself later. <laughs> And you might come up, you know, you can come up with really good reasons as to why you made that decision, but not they're not necessarily true. Is that a thing in Malcolm Gladwell's Blink, potentially? Yeah, it might have been. Feels along that kind of genre. So to get to the foundations within moral foundations theory is probably the important part. Coming into the argument, the main reason that Julia got recommended to talk to Jonathan was there's a distinct finding that liberals behave differently to conservatives in the US on different dimensions of morality if you build it up in different ways. So in these different dimensions, there is care, cherishing and protecting others or being the opposite of harm, fairness or proportionality, rendering justice according to shared rules or the opposite of cheating, essentially. Loyalty or in-group, which is standing with your group, family, nation, basically the opposite of betrayal. Authority or respect, submitting to tradition and legitimate authority, the opposite of subversion. And sanctity or purity, the abhorrence for disgusting things, foods or actions, the opposite of degradation. And there's potentially a sixth that they looked at being liberty with the opposite being oppression. So across those different groups, they found that liberals, at least in the United States, 
So those being on the more traditionally left side of the spectrum, we'd say. So looking at it from Australia, you know, we'd see them as Democrats and Republicans. So this would be the Democrat side of it generally. So in Australian government, we would typically see it as Labor is left or Greens are left being the Liberals. And confusingly, the Liberal yep. political party would be the Conservative Party. Possibly that just points to how uh, Liberal Australia is as a whole. Potentially. They found that those on the left side of the political spectrum rated much higher in harm and fairness than in loyalty, authority, or sanctity, whereas conservatives were pretty much equal across all of them. Why do they go harm and fairness when they just said it was care as the opposite of harm and fairness as the opposite of cheating? Uh, yeah, that's a great point. That's a bad graph. Stop that. Anyway, a lot of this conversation between Julia and Jonathan was him explaining the premise that, yep, some people don't just see the world morally in the frame of care for others or the potential for harm to them and equality and fairness. They also factor in things like respect for authority. They also factor in things like sanctity and purity. They also factor in just loyalty to your family or your in-group generally. And Julia really, really struggled with those arguments. Like she's like, well, I can come up with arguments for them, but if I take it to the second level, they all boil down to harm or fairness. Yeah, they come back to harm or fairness, which I'd say is where I said. I would say, honestly, you could make the argument the other way though. I'd say some of the arguments for harm or fairness, you could make as, well, I'm just doing that to be fair to my in-group, but I can be unfair to the rest of the out-group. Maybe. Like I'm just doing it for the good of my in-group or I'm willing to harm someone because I respect authority. I guess. It just depends on where you want your stopping point to be. You always end up up in a circular loop, but where is your stopping point going to be? I think this is the problem with politics all the time. Is you always go to have to appeal to second or third or fourth order things, which is just like you're just making stuff up because you don't want to do it. And like, yeah. <laughs> I think that links to your first point that you made on this whole article, which is just like we're just justifying our in intuitions at the end of the day. Yep, yep, absolutely. One of the interesting things that came out of this that I didn't even realize that it was the same guy because this is where I've come across his research before is if you ask a bunch of Democrats in America what Republicans believe and why. They're pretty bad at it. They're not very good at articulating Republican beliefs or particularly why they believe those things. But if you ask a bunch of Republicans what Democrats believe and why, they can actually say pretty well. They just disagree. That's an interesting point. I think, yeah, I've come across the same research and I think looking at this graph, it's like pretty powerful is the conservative view having almost equal weight to all those different moral foundations. Like they're not substantially lower on harm or fairness, but they just have a higher weighting of everything else so they can theoretically see across the spectrum more easily, I suppose. Yeah, that was the conjecture is that Republicans understand the harm and fairness aspects of moral foundations as well as they understand the other three, whereas the Democrats or the liberals only really understand the harm and fairness things and do not even understand what people are talking about when they make an appeal to sanctity or make an appeal to the in-group. Yeah. So when you think about your own personal priority of the care slash harm moral foundation, what gets you there? So what gets me there? Where I think this is interesting to think about is at what point would I trade off harm of someone I don't know for someone I do know. I think that that's the easiest way to draw the line is that I have a lot of people in my life who I love and cherish and I respect them and, you know, I would do things for them. At what point do I trade off harm to other people that I don't know? So this would be the loyalty trait for the harm trait. At what point do I generalize harm? And I can very quickly spend resources on those I love, even if those resources could prevent significantly higher harm elsewhere. I would be much happier buying you a coffee than I would to be buying a malaria bed net for someone in a developing nation, even though that bed net could well save their life and that coffee, you're not even going to enjoy it. You're going to be like, you're going to get home, you're going to pour it out and you're going to make yourself an instant coffee. I'm just incapable of enjoying anything. So yeah. <laughs> it's not so, the coffee's fault. <laughs> it's not the coffee's fault. It's my fault. <laughs> even thinking you'd enjoy winning a coffee. <laughs> <laughs> but I would really struggle with actively harming someone to protect you. If you got yourself in a fight and I sort of thought it was your fault that you were being in the wrong here, but I needed to defend you because you were going to get your butt beat and you needed me to actually harm someone else, I don't think that my loyalty stretches that far. I think that causing harm externally like that, from a moral sense, I would say that that is an immoral act. There may be social pressures that could cause me to do it, but I think that harming someone on your benefit just because of my loyalty to you would be actively immoral, whereas I think buying you a coffee rather than using those funds to help someone else, I still see as pretty moral. Interesting. I mean, I can see if I take the second order arguments <laughs> for that position, I can see it like engaging in fighting is just a net negative activity overall to society no matter what and sacrificing that versus buying a coffee is not necessarily net negative. It's marginally positive. So you're just sacrificing a massive positive 
positive for a marginal positive rather than... Yeah. And the scales may be off, but I could see me much more easily doing that sacrifice, right? Yeah. It's the, the funny logic of positives versus negatives. I'm that normal dude who would just jump into the fight. So, you know, you can feel safe with me. Okay. I do feel safe <laughs> with you. But would you view it as moral? Like, I mean, yeah. like I say, there may be social pressures that would cause me to fight on your behalf. Yep. I can see a world in which that I would do it. I just see that as immoral. I think that that is actively immoral. That if I think you're in the wrong, that fighting someone and hurting them on your behalf just because of my loyalty to you, while I may do it, I think it is immoral. Have we found something that Chris and Brian disagree on? That's the I first so. question. Yes, this is what I the listeners so. want to know. Wow, we did it. <laughs> I need to tease out the point because there are different circumstances in which I would get in a fight for someone, like a friend of mine, like you, yep. for example. Oh, that's the first time you've ever said we're friends. That's so nice to hear. <laughs> So your point there as to whether, you know, it was a stupid fight or yep. if it was like you just picked a fight for no reason, you were drunk and just in a bad mood. Yep. Would I join that fight and punch the other guys? No, I would just do my best to drag you the heck out of there, potentially having to hit someone in the meantime to get you to get a clear yep, path, but clean. not actually yep. in the fight. If it was like someone had picked a fight with you and like started it and whatever it was on, yep. then getting involved would not be as big a problem for me. This is actually a situation that I've faced in the past, which is why I feel comfortable in saying it. Yeah, having dragged someone away from a fight, as well as being in circumstances where other friends have been too drunk and coming from an honor society and picking fights that they didn't need to and me just being like, no, nah, that's your problem, man. Right, okay, so you can go either way. So it doesn't matter why they're fighting for you. Yeah, but it still has a higher rating than you for sure. The loyalty has a higher rating for you. Mm-hmm. I mean, that doesn't surprise me, right? You're the conservative one on this podcast. We've been through this. Everyone, <laughs> look at Brian's ABC vote compass before you call him Dirty Republican. Fun stuff, fun stuff. Yeah, okay, that's interesting. No, I think I just made the point. Well, I made a comment on Reddit about it on the podcast affix user. Yeah, yep, trying to gain some fame. Do a little bit of the old growth hacking. Yep, uh, um, just encouraging Julia to try and make an argument from the opposite perspective for the same outcomes that she wants. And I think it's doable in some cases. I think we can look at some things in our life around sanctity or purity that we while we may argue ourselves as agnostic or atheist or not really follow a particular faith there are things that we treat in life as sacred uh, you mentioned earlier around antinatalists there seems to be at the very least in the fire community as well as some other communities on reddit presumably what is it child free people who value the sanctity of earth at pre-industrial levels of temperature higher than the ongoing continuation of humanity and that's kind of treating the earth as sacred i suppose that is treating the earth as sacred. I think it would be fair that we have turned climate change somewhat into a religion. And this is where it is most obvious to me. This, this argument comes up repeatedly on Reddit with a straight face, as far as I can tell, that the biggest impact on climate is people. And so by having another child, that is now your fault. You have 50% increased your impact on climate or 100% increased if you decided to go for IVF as a single person. But yep. you're fully responsible for all their carbon and carbon is so terrible that it is against our religion that we emit any carbon. And And so your responsibility is to never do that. I I cannot. I cannot get my head around this argument. Like people are responsible for their own actions, even children, and people are a positive thing in the universe. We should have more people in the universe. They're great. I love them. So the idea that you should not have kids to try to save the planet, it just doesn't compute in my mind. The idea that there's some level of sin, which is your carbon emissions over a lifetime, and that you inherit the sin of your children and your grandchildren, it's... uh, reducing carbon emissions is not a terminal goal. We want to reduce some carbon emissions because it will have a very negative impact on people and the planet in the future. And out of that, I weigh the people part of that equation at 90% of it. Yeah, I agree. I'm not out there saying, everyone, you should go have eight kids or whatever. I'm not that Yeah, so I'm also not like, I'm not saying I'm pronatalist. But at the same time, yeah, I think I agree. Like the value in the world is attributable to consciousness and increasing general consciousness through increasing the number of human lives lived is a good thing. It's net good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not hundred percent sure I'm on that page that more people is net good, even though I literally said it five minutes ago, <laughs> but I cannot see not creating a person so that you can save the world as good. I just can't, I just cannot get the maths to add up in my head. And I care about climate change. I want you to know, listener, I care deeply about climate change and reducing carbon emissions, but the only reason I care is to have a better planet to live on. So that there is more happiness for the people who do exist. And having less people, I don't think impacts that. Yep, there's some important caveats on more human lives lived, I suppose. I guess we can get to repugnant conclusions, etc. Yeah, I do hate the repugnant conclusion. There's a lot of room before the repugnant conclusion, so let's just leave it. We're that. not there yet. 
And I'm not going to explain what the repugnant conclusion is. Look at the show notes. So how do you feel about moral foundations theory? Do you think it has an intuitive sense to you? Do you feel like... So I'm just going to steal this from a comment on Reddit instead of doing my own research. But what someone pointed out is this graph, and we'll put it in the show notes, is two lines sloping down from liberal to moderate to conservative and three lines sloping up from liberal to moderate to conservative. And that would be the care and fairness and then the loyalty, authority, sanctity. And so he says that liberals only care about two things and conservatives care about all five. And maybe we should try to understand those five better so that we can communicate better. And the comment was like, maybe we should do a little bit of principal component analysis on this graph. And if there's three lines that are all directly on top of this, maybe they're all actually the same thing. And you've just made up these moral foundations. And if you read the history of his work, he literally did make up the history of the moral foundations. He's actually done like pretty big sample size groups to get these conclusions. So it does seem like there's something there, but the specific names that he's giving them maybe don't map as well as, as his books would suggest that they do. Interesting. I do love a bit of PCA. Oh, getting in the data science room. References. Respect yep. to you, Chris. <laughs> Thank Great you. Job. Uh, principal component analysis, for those that don't know, is a way of squishing multiple different dimensions down into a single dimension. So when things are moving all over the place, and this is particularly useful for high dimensional data, 100 dimensional data, 200 dimensional data, don't try to imagine it, your brain will explode. You can often crush it down into just two or three dimensions. I, in fact, helped work to, on a PhD way, way, way in the past 12, 13 years ago that took sort of three or 400 dimensional data out of a stamping press and then broke it down into two dimensions. And then you could see with the combination of these two dimensions up here means the stamp is working well and the combination of these two dimensions down here means the stamp is working terribly. It was actually like basically really early machine learning. It was pretty cool. Nice. And if you can't ignore Chris's suggestion there to don't think about hundreds of dimensions, just think of it like a spreadsheet and that it's hundreds of columns. Yeah, you could do it that way. Yeah, hundreds of columns. And then you can just crush it down to get most of the information out of two columns. Well, sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. But when you can, you say that the principal components overwhelm the lower components and there's no point in looking at every single component. We can get all the information we need out of the principal components. And so when you've got a bunch of parallel lines, you can probably just say there's a shared commonality between this authority in-group and purity that is all of them together and that calling them different things. And intuitively, they make sense that they're different in your mind. But if everyone's mapped exactly on the same linear plane to each of these and there's no one person really cares about authority, but a different person really cares about purity, and that doesn't seem to happen, or at least on the averages, then maybe we're not talking about the right things. There's some underlying factor that explains all three. Yeah, I'd actually be interested to see some of the background on this now, because I could see how those dimensions would not map the same across different cultures, like you could have different authority versus in-group versus purity if you were comparing America versus India or something like that. But yeah, no, that's an interesting point. There is differences within countries, but there is apparently even greater differences between class using education as a proxy for class within countries. There you go. Huh, classy. Uh, yeah, that, that was quite interesting. So anyway, the last point that I wanted to make is that maybe this is the Myers-Briggs to the big five that we will discover later because I saw that written elsewhere. So the Myers-Briggs type personality is interesting, but maybe a little bit more akin to a horoscope than true psychology and all the professional PhD psychologists who are on the board of the Myers-Briggs Institute that sells lots of courses to business and never actually write papers on the Myers-Briggs type analysis. They use the big five. So the big five factors are psychologically much more well supported and are different to the Myers-Briggs type. So we could put link in the show notes of which each of them are because I can't remember them all. Yeah, but sometimes Big Five call you mean names and people don't like to hear them. So listen to episode zero for more of our thoughts on that. Yeah, that's the nice thing about Myers-Briggs is you're whatever you are, you're always a good person. Whereas the Big Five, sometimes you're neurotic and disagreeable and no one is paying $5,000 to go on a business retreat to be called neurotic and disagreeable. So potentially that's what we'll find with this. Maybe Moral Foundations points to something that is useful. There's a lot of research that says that there are differences between populations and some people understand that morals different. So maybe there is something there, but I do know that he literally came up with these five by thinking in an armchair with his friend. And so maybe we haven't got the correct five yet. And we've got a lot of information to say there's something there, but we haven't truly narrowed down what it actually is yet. So it's a pretty interesting area of research. Certainly, I loved the interview with him. Certainly, it opened my mind to think about a few things because I would probably be on your classical liberal scale. And potentially, there's something there in the morals that I am missing, although I'm not convinced he's nailed it just yet. Cool. Good stuff. Good thoughts. And I also thoroughly recommend the podcast. So there we go. We'll chuck a link to that in the show notes to all right here's the big question it's coffee bed time did chris actually prepare for a coffee bed i mean i thought about it i want to make another like 10 year one we're gonna, when, oh my when God. you and i are in our 40s we're gonna have a lot of caffeine i hope coffee is still legal by then because there's gonna be a lot of bets rolling through <laughs> All right. I can't believe how prepared you are this episode. I just like linking my coffee bets to the show. And so what I wanted to bet is within 10 years, will any, any G20 country have something that resembles UBI? 
G20 country. Who's the lowest in the G20? I don't know. It's the 19 biggest. Uh, <laughs> I, I re- I, like 20 doesn't seem like enough, but then I read it and it's the 19 biggest economies plus the entire EU. They're the 20th. So it's actually more countries than you think. Freak off. That doesn't seem fair. I don't want to bet whether Estonia is going to have a UBI. I mean, I'll oh. enjoy it because it means Indrek will be more likely to be streaming. Ah, but <laughs> Entrepreneurial streaming. Okay, well, I don't know. Looking over this, I'm going to be editing out a whole bunch of mumbling between us. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> What's your view? My view? Yeah, I like your Estonia pick. Like some tiny European nation is going to do it within 10 years. Uh, yep. I would take the yes side of 10 years. I mean, there's people agitating for it in Australia. That's how we brought the topic up it's in true. general. So 10 years is a long time in politics, as they like to say. I mean, And there's a lot of countries in the G20 when you count the entirety of the European Union. Yep. So I feel like someone's going to try it in the next 10 years. I do. I agree. And that's why I'm trying to figure out what's the point at which I don't agree. Yep. So nine years. Oh, I mean, shortening the bet's good, right? Six months. We'll make this a six-month bet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we can play with different dimensions here. We can play with time as to how soon it's going to happen, or we can play with the specifics of how it's going to roll out, right? So if we say it's truly universal and children get exactly the same as parents, that yeah. might be a determining factor for me. Nah, I don't like that. I'd prefer to play with time because, I mean, the specifics of the implementation are so hard to predict. I don't think I've got any true insight there. But if we both think that it's likely to happen within 10 years, do we both think it's likely to happen within nine years at what year do we disagree or at least are even do we just have a big payoff in 2030 for a couple of bets uh that's nine years yeah would you take the no side of 2030 i'll take the no side but we need to have a mechanism for agreeing that it actually is ubi sure 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 uh so you're saying by the end of 2030 or the start of 2030 start of 2030 end of this decade yeah i reckon 2030 is a good political year for it as we've looked forward into the next decade we have announced this sweeping regime of ubi yeah that's a tricky one yep okay all right i like it i'll stick on the low side but i think 2030 is like a really promising year for your ubi and so yeah what counts as ubi where are we drawing the line up i think it needs to be truly universal in that it goes to all citizens yep and it needs to be... I want to have some flexibility around children because I can imagine it being half for children or quartered sure. or something like that. All voting age citizens. All voting age citizens probably residing in the country. Yep, that's fine. doesn't have to be expats. Um, and... And at what level are we setting it? Because there are there yeah. are, there are are dividends. The Alaskan oil dividend, I think, is the biggest one I can think of where every Alaskan gets a couple of grand a year. But you would not call that a UBI. You know, no, that's what I'm not, thinking. Not able to be lived off. Three minutes of haggling later. Could we just get an arbitrator rather than all right we'll get an arbitrator they make the call as to whether it's enough to be all right UBI. that sounds good probably the patron who suggested this whole topic all right there you go good job patron you did not know what you were you signing up know what you're signing up for when you suggested this topic all right so on to the diablo news this week we get to be silly again yes hooray who would have thought being silly about a video game <laughs> Uh, it's great. So I thought I'd just quickly cover off on a throwaway comment I made last week. Normally I'd be talking about whatever Macau is up to this week. Well, if you look at the Fresh World Records leaderboard at the moment, six out of the 10 records on there are Macau. So he's just making all the records. Funnily enough, they're all just in barbarian categories, so he knows exactly what he's on about. Did, did his country start paying UPI so he can sit around at home all day and play Diablo permanently? <laughs> I mean, no, you get on this stream and it's playing in the middle of the night. So he's just really committed to those world records. I don't know how you sit there and like do a 13 hour run in the middle of the oh. night. It's just oh, madness. That's hard. Yeah, that's really hard. Just before the Diablo 2 resurrected announcement, he put up a summary video of one of his eight hour runs explaining, you know, what was good in the run and that kind of thing. And I thought that would be good to link to listeners of the show because it's only maybe five minutes to watch the video compared to watching an eight hour run and explains things pretty nicely. Yeah, none of our listeners are watching the eight hour run. It's not happening. (laughs) So yeah, I'll include that in there, but that's kind of the news in world records for Diablo speedrunning. There's not really been too much happening this last week. So what's Indrek doing? What's Mr. Lama doing? Where are they? There is actually a bit of news on that front. So Indrek basically went on an unexplained leave of absence for the last two months. And yesterday he streamed for the first time, much to everyone's enjoyment on his Discord. So good to have him back. He's a top category runner. Oh my God, I'm looking at the leaderboard now. He used to have the second most world records in Diablo 2, but now McCalb has them. McCalb is now number two. Indrek being number one, of course. Bender being number one. What? So once upon a time it was Indrek. Indrek had them all. Bender came back, took them off him and leaving Indrek at number two. But now McCalb has stolen even number two. So you can't wow. be complacent in Diablo 2 speedrunning. Take a couple of months hiatus and you're down. 
Nice. <laughs> Killed it. You nailed it. Awesome. What an intro. <laughs> You've completely blown out my mic with laughing. Awesome. I'm glad. <laughs> <sighs> Good stuff. Good stuff. <laughs>